We're in John chapter 20, verses 24 through 31. Now Thomas, one of the 12, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails, and place my finger into the mark of the nails, and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands, and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Jim Collins, author of Good to Great, interviewed Admiral Jim Stockdale, who was the highest ranking officer in the Hanoi Hilton prisoner of war camp at the height of the Vietnam War. And Collins asked Stockdale this question, who didn't make it out of these prisoner of war camps? And Stockdale said, oh, that's easy, the optimists. And Collins said, wait a minute, the optimists? I, I don't get it, explain. Stockdale went on to say, the optimists. Oh, they were the ones who said, we're gonna be out by Christmas. And Christmas would come and Christmas would go. Then they'd say, we're gonna be out by Easter and Easter would come and Easter would go. Then they would say, we're going to be out by Thanksgiving, and then it would be Christmas again. He said they died of a broken heart. What brings security to life in such uncertain times? It's certainly not optimism, which in reality is just a veiled denial of present reality. It's not optimism. That doesn't bring security. Or pretending that things are not that bad. Nor does incessant activity to shore up the leaks in the dam bring security. Nor does a wishful thinking type of faith that's not grounded in anything objective. That doesn't bring security nor does Hakuna Matata. That's that famous phrase from the Lion King. Means no worries today. Problem-free philosophy. No, this current historical moment is too big for any of those security solutions. So how does Easter, the day we celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ, how does Easter bring security to life in a time like this. 
first. It redefines your life. Thomas experiences a total life paradigm shift in this passage. You've got Thomas before he meets the risen Christ, and you have Thomas after he meets the risen Christ. Now, what, what is Thomas's paradigm before he meets the risen Christ? Well, it's described in verses 24 and 25. He was one of the 12 disciples, and for some reason, he wasn't with the disciples the first time that Jesus appeared to them. But they get back together, and the disciples say to Thomas, we've seen the Lord. Jesus is alive. And Thomas would have none of it. Thomas would have none of it. Their testimony meant nothing to him. Thomas was somewhat of a stubborn guy. Thomas was somewhat of a pessimist. Maybe some of you can relate. But we, we learn back shortly before Jesus' crucifixion in John 11 that Thomas was with Jesus when the messenger brought word that Lazarus was sick. And so after waiting a couple days, Jesus finally decides to go to Lazarus, and, and Thomas says, all right, let's go with Jesus and die. Thomas basically was saying, Jesus, this is about the worst idea I could imagine, but I'm loyal, so I'll go with you and die with you. This isn't going to work out so well. Then you go to John 14, when Jesus says, I'm going to prepare a place for you. You know where I'm going. Thomas says, Lord, we don't know where you're going. You haven't been clear enough. We need more detail. So by the time we get to John 20, Thomas's response is not so shocking. Not so shocking. He says, I don't care what you all say. I won't believe until, and then verse 25, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Thomas makes demands of Christ. Thomas puts conditions, certain conditions on Christ. There's three of them. He says, I need to see the nail marks, I need to put my finger in the nail marks, and I need to put my hand in your side where you were stabbed with a spear. Thomas is making demands of Christ. It almost, it almost reads a little bit like a hostage situation where the criminal you know, gets the hostage and threatens to kill him unless the demands are met. You know, why, why does a criminal get a hostage? To gain control, to get what he wants. In some ways, Thomas is holding his unbelief hostage, and he's not going to release his unbelief until Jesus meets these conditions. Now, what I want you to see is that this paradigm for Thomas, which is I'm in control, I'm in the driver's seat, I'm making demands of Christ, this is the natural life paradigm. We are born into the world with this paradigm. I'm in control, I'm in the driver's seat. Everyone, including God, exists to answer my demands. It's the 
paradigm that treats God almost like a, a genie in a bottle. And this is nothing new. Last week, John chapter 12, which was a week before Jesus would be crucified, we find the crowds roaring at Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem. His approval ratings were through the roof because they thought that he was coming to answer their demands, and that was to get rid of the people, namely the Romans, who were making their life very difficult. Now, these same people, a week later, were yelling, crucify him, crucify him, why? Because it became clear that he wasn't going to answer their demands as they wished to be answered. This paradigm is what I would call life with self in the center paradigm, or self in the driver's seat, or self in control. And, and because we're born into the world this way, we construct or we make religions in this paradigm. Every ancient religion, every major world religion falls in this paradigm, and it's basically the paradigm that says God can be controlled or God can be manipulated. So you look at the ancient religions. They viewed the gods as gods who could be purchased or won over. And the way that you would win over a god would be to shed blood, would be to have a blood sacrifice. And so all the ancient religions had blood sacrifices because that's the way that you would win the god over and manipulate the god. Now you might say, well, wait a minute. The Old Testament, Christianity, is full of blood sacrifice. What's the difference? What's the difference? Well, they're very different. In the ancient religions, you would shed your blood. That's why child sacrifice was a very common in ancient religions. You would shed your blood to win a God over, to get what you wanted. In Christianity, in the Old Testament, in the sacrificial system, those sacrifices were used by God to show the people the blood that God would shed to win his people back one day. Very different. And so modern world religions operate with this same paradigm. Now, blood sacrifice isn't necessarily common in modern world religions, but it's the same premise, and that is that you purchase or you win a God over. Typically, in modern religions, it's by your good works. It's by what you do. So I obey so that God will give me X, Y, and Z, help riches, success. Right? If I don't obey, he won't give me those. He may even take some of that away. Let me give you a somewhat comical example of this, this paradigm that God can be controlled or that God can be manipulated. I went to college in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, Carnegie Mellon University, and my life in college looked very different than my life in high school. High school, I was a pretty good kid. In college, I joined a fraternity, enjoyed my freedoms, and uh, did things in college I never thought I would do. I grew, up, I grew up in a religious environment, and so I was well aware that what I was doing probably wasn't making God overly happy or pleased, but I was falling squarely within this paradigm that God could be controlled or manipulated, so I vividly remember this moment. I'm driving down Forbes Avenue in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, 
in my Toyota Corolla, white Toyota Corolla, SR5, vivid memory. And I'm scanning the radio station to find some good music to listen to, and the scan fell on a Christian radio station. And I thought, this is awful music. I don't like it. But maybe if I leave it on here for two or three minutes, I can earn some chips with God. And I can cut into the deficit a little bit with God. Now, you laugh, you chuckle. We do the same thing. How? If I beat myself up after committing a sin enough to let God know that I'm serious about my sorrow, then maybe he'll forgive me. Or, or if I give a little bit more to the church or to a charity, maybe God will overlook some of the lifestyle I know that's probably not in line with what he wants. Or if I explain to God why I did this wrong because the circumstances are just so unprecedented and overwhelming, surely he'll understand that we do the same thing. This paradigm, life with self at the center, that God can be controlled or manipulated, this is a recipe for insecurity. Why? because you never know if you've done enough to win God over. You never know if you've done enough to win him over. But as we'll see in this passage, this life paradigm gets crushed, gets absolutely crushed and replaced with a completely different life paradigm. Thomas makes his demands of Jesus. He places his conditions on Jesus. He holds his unbelief hostage. How does Jesus respond to this? Well, eight days later, disciples are gathered with Thomas in the locked room. Jesus appears to them. And then he says this to Thomas in verse 27. Put your finger here and see my hands and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Now, Jesus' response to Thomas is remarkable on two levels. First, the fact that Jesus would even entertain Thomas's demands is shocking. Jesus could have said, uh, hey, Thomas, sorry, man. It doesn't work this way. You don't place demands on me. Do you know who I am? Of course, Thomas didn't understand yet who Jesus was. He was still working in the old paradigm. But Jesus meets Thomas right where he's at, in the midst of his unbelief in the midst of his doubt. And what I would say to you today is that Jesus is not afraid of your doubt. He's not afraid of your skepticism. He's not afraid of your anger. He's not afraid of your questions. He meets you right where you're at. He met Thomas where he was at. It's a, it's a wonderful, amazing display of grace, of patience, of love, 
that he would meet Thomas where he was at. So he treats him with grace. He treats him with kindness. He moves towards Thomas in his unbelief. But then he, he flips the tables on Thomas. And this is the second level at which Jesus' response is absolutely remarkable. He answers Thomas's three demands with three commands. Three commands. Put your finger here. See my hands. Put out your hand and place it in my side. Those three commands absolutely match up to Thomas's three demands. And what we see here is that Jesus is destroying Thomas's paradigm, this paradigm of life with self in the center, this paradigm that, that God can be controlled or manipulated. Jesus is crushing this. Why? How's he doing it? Any other major world religion that I described that falls in that, that first paradigm, in any other major world religion, religion situation, someone like Christ or, or, or a God, if they were presented with this scenario, would come to Thomas and say, Thomas, where's your blood? Where's your blood? You're in unbelief. You're making demand. Where's your blood? How are you going to purchase me? How are you going to win me over? And yet we, what we find here is that Jesus says, Thomas, let me show you my blood. Let me show you my scars. Let me show you how I shed blood for you to win you back. What we see here is this absolute transformation where Jesus isn't responding to Thomas. Now Thomas is responding to Jesus. And we see that in verse 28. When Thomas says, my Lord and my God, you see that the paradigm has shifted. Thomas is no longer putting demands on Jesus. Thomas is submitting to Christ. He's worshiping Christ. Now, why did Thomas respond this way? Well, first, note that when Thomas made his demands of Jesus in verse 25 with the other disciples, Jesus wasn't there. But eight days later, what we find is that Jesus made it very clear to Thomas, oh, Thomas, I heard you. I wasn't physically present. I heard you. He revealed his all-knowing nature that he was God. And then, of course, when he shows Thomas the, the scars and the marks on his body, it was evidence that this is the same man that was laid in the tomb three days earlier. This is the same Jesus, although now in a glorified body, he was alive. He was God. And Thomas responded with worship and submission. The paradigm flipped for him. This is the whole purpose of John's gospel. The very first verse of John's gospel says, in the beginning was the word, the word was with God, and the word, speaking of Christ, was God. And now here is the confession by Thomas. It's the first direct confession to Jesus being God. And John writes after Thomas's confession in verse 31, these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. 
two paradigms for life. Life with self in the center or life with Christ in the center. Now, I'm answering the question, how does the resurrection of Christ bring surprising security to life? Why surprising? Why surprising? Well, the most natural thought is that to think that the more control you have, the more secure you are. And yet just the opposite is true. That when you're operating in the paradigm of life with self in the center, the more control you have, the more insecure you become, actually. Think about it. If you get promoted at work and you are promoted into more responsibility and more power, suddenly there's more balls to drop. There's more mistakes to make. Uh, there's more character flaws that can come out. You become very vulnerable. There's more to lose. You actually become more insecure the more control you have when you're operating in that first paradigm with self at the center. It's surprising, it's counterintuitive to think that you gain security by giving away control. What we learn from the resurrection of Jesus Christ, what Christ teaches us through his resurrection, is that you were never in control in the first place. You were never in control in the first place. The reality is that Christ is the center of this world. Christ is in control. Christ is all-powerful. That is reality. And so what we see is that the resurrection of Jesus Christ doesn't just redefine your life, your life paradigm. It redefines reality. What is true and real in the world? And we see Thomas faced with this stunning reality when Christ appeared to him. Note verse 26. Note the emphasis. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again. Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. John emphasizes that the doors were locked. Why? Because he wants to make it clear to you and to the reader, to us, that Jesus didn't open the door and walk in. That Jesus passed through the wall to get into the room. This was no ordinary man. But then you note verse 27. When, when Jesus commands Thomas to touch him, why the emphasis there? The nail mark, the scar, the physical body. It's to show that Jesus wasn't a ghost. What we see here is the resurrected, physical, glory, glorious body of Jesus Christ, fully human, fully God. And in these post-resurrection appearances, and there were quite a few of them, as Jesus comes and goes, it's almost as though he is at times belonging in our world and at times belonging to a different world. And that's exactly what is intended. And that's what Thomas was faced with, this stunning reality that heaven and earth, which had been disconnected, which had been ripped apart by sin in Genesis 3, were now coming back together 
in the finished work and the person of Jesus Christ. The unseen world of heaven and the seen world of earth were coming back together. And Jesus was coming and going and, and passing between the different worlds, the kingdom of God and the kingdom of this world. So we are faced, as Thomas was faced with a stunning reality, we're faced with two important realities as we see what happened here. Number one, there is an unseen world. There's an unseen world. It's called the kingdom of God. And Jesus today, alive in a physical glorified body, dwells in this unseen world, this unseen realm called the kingdom of God. It's the Holy Spirit that makes his presence real in our world, in this seen world, on this earth. The second reality that we learn here is that heaven, or life after death in heaven, is not some disembodied, immaterial existence where our souls just float somewhere for eternity. What we learn is that, that we will have a glorified body like Jesus in a new heavens and a new earth. When he returns and heaven and earth is reunited, it will be a physical, material world where there will be no more death, no more pandemics, no more sin. And we will have physical bodies. The veil right now that separates this visible world from the kingdom of God will be gone. We will be able to touch Jesus Christ like Thomas did in this new world. Now, it's a stunning reality. Is this a reality for everyone? And the answer is, depends. Look at verse 29. Blessed are those who have not seen, have not seen like Thomas was able to see. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. You gain security. You're blessed when you start living in light of this unseen reality, when you believe that Jesus is the, the, the risen Christ who is bringing heaven and earth back together. You gain security when you live in light of reality, not in light of an illusion. Growing up in South Florida, in the little small town of Deerfield Beach, we would have annual parades where all the various civic organizations in the city would put floats and, together and enter this parade. And some of the floats were pretty, pretty complex and ornate. Uh, a number of the floats were made out of paper mache. Now, what's paper mache? Well, that's where you take chicken wire and you, you, know, you mold it into whatever you're trying to build, and then you take strips of paper and you lay it over the chicken wire to cover it with some sort of adhesive, and then you paint it at the end. And if it's done really well, from a distance, it looks real. If it's done well from a distance, it looks real, whatever the object or the figure is. But if you get close to it and you poke your finger through it, you realize very quickly it's not real. Or if you sit there and watch a torrential downpour on this papier-mâché 
float, you realize very quickly that it's not real. If your life is functionally like paper mache, and by that I mean that if your life is centered and built on only what you can see, then it's very likely that this coronavirus and this pandemic has caused problems and has caused things in your life to start falling apart, poking holes in various parts of your life. If your life has been built with the paper mache of an investment account or a 401k, then it's falling apart. If your life is built with the paper mache of entertainment and pleasure, then in this current season, it's falling apart. If your life's been built with the paper mache of ambition and success, then certainly this season of shutdown is causing it to fall apart. If your life is built on only what your physical eye can see, then this pandemic is terrifying. And it should be terrifying. It's like watching a paper mache float in a torrential downpour. So how do you not build a paper mache life? Verse 31. These are written, meaning this historical count of Thomas and the other resurrection accounts and the rest of John's gospel. These are written so that, here's the purpose, that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. How do you not build a paper mache life? You believe. You attach yourself by faith to the risen Christ and to his kingdom that has come and that is coming. And the promise is that when you do that, you will be given life. Not a paper mache life, but a life that cannot be destroyed by a pandemic, a life that cannot be destroyed by a disease, a life that cannot be destroyed by an economic disaster a life that cannot be destroyed by death itself. It's eternal life with Jesus Christ at the center. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we give you praise for this day of Easter that we celebrate the resurrection of your Son we know that he is alive now in a physical glorified body in the unseen realm of heaven, of the kingdom of God. Father, we confess that and even this pandemic and this quarantine and this stay at home has revealed how easy it is to build and center a life on only what we can see. 
Father, I pray for those that maybe are confronted like Thomas was with this stunning reality of the risen Christ for the first time, that you by your Holy Spirit would draw them out of their doubt, out of their skepticism, and into belief. And that they would experience life, eternal life, a different kind of life, a life that is that cannot be destroyed by anything in this world. Oh, Jesus, we place our hope firmly and squarely in you. And we ask that you would raise us to life with you, that you would give us security in the midst of these very uncertain times, a security that is indestructible, because it's attached to you. And Father, we long for the day when Jesus will return, when heaven and earth will be one, when there will be a new heavens and a new earth with no more disease, no more sin, no more crying, no more pain. Until that day comes, would you unite our hearts to you? In Christ's name we pray, amen.